Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes Live in Miniseries features Rav Mike Foyer. For more information on how to download more podcasts, visit elmod.pardes.org. As always, I want to thank the Pardes Institute, that's P-A-R-D-S.org.il, for helping to make this class happen. Hi, guys. Bonus class. Is everybody excited? Um, so this is what I would like to do today. Um, we actually actually had to do this, and I'm grateful that everybody showed up because I left off right in the middle of Moses Mendelssohn's story. And I don't know that I'd be able to sleep until next semester if I was, like, in the middle of a story, you know? Like, you can't stop in the middle. So what I want to do today um, is very briefly recapitulate the first half of the story in order to lay the groundwork, and then we're going to move forward to, to basically Mendelssohn's death, and his death is in many ways the launching point for an actual Berlin Enlightenment, an actual social movement amongst Jews who are attempting to embody what they understand to be his principles, and it sets the stage in many ways for Judaism as we know it. So that's the task for today. Um, and just like I said, for those of you who weren't there, looking forward, when we pick up after Pesach, we'll be in the Omer series. It's a special series which is dedicated to the foundational thinkers of Zionism and their historical context. I encourage everybody to, to join for that. It's a standalone, so we're going to jump a little bit in time and space and just focus on, I think it's five classes of, uh, of these Zionist thinkers in their historical and intellectual context. And then when we pick up the class again in the fall in its normal flow after uh, whatever we decide to do in Elul, we will pick right back up, like I was telling Shelley, we'll pick right back up with basically the turn of the, um, the, turn of the 19th century. Sorry, yeah, 19th century. My guess is actually we'll start with the French Revolution. Because we're, we're only going to touch on a little bit of its rumblings today. And that seems to me to be the most logical place to pick up. And that's the big picture. Okay. You guys ready? You know, remember, nonverbal communication is very important in this medium. Um, so, so let's just recall the problem that we're dealing with. And, and that problem is modernity. And I say it's a problem, even though, you know, that's already, we're not allowed to say problem, the challenge. We'll say the challenge that we're dealing with. Not allowed to say problem anymore, right? And that challenge um, basically comes on two fronts. It's a challenge of place, and it's a challenge of identity. Now, obviously, those two intersect, but I want to disaggregate them in order to be able to understand not only the challenge and the context, but specifically why Moses Mendelssohn is remembered as a foundational figure for Jewish modernity. So the challenge of place we could really sort of articulate as the Jewish problem. You recall, and we've said it many times even recently, that the medieval European culture had a very specific place for the Jews. It may not have been sort of a happy, happy place all the time, but it was secure, right? When it was in the feudal system, the Jews were the serf of the king, right? As the feudal system began to break down, there was still a notion that the Jews were a corporate entity, a separate society within a society, and therefore, it was easily negotiable what the status of the Jew was within society. The status of a Jew was simply put, a Jew, right? And there were different places that had different, you know, Jews in some places will rise to a very high level, the court Jews, etc. We'll reference them again. Other places, there was literally a law which permitted cities and, and German states to not tolerate the, the law. I forget the Latin term, but basically the law of non-toleration. It was completely legal to ban all Jews from your township or principality or whatever it was. But as difficult or as good as that status might have been, in medieval society was a very clear status, which I hope you'll recall was really rooted in the 4th century, late, actually, 
fifth century, fifth century, I apologize, uh, Augustinian vision that the Jews were meant to be kept alive, but in a degraded state in order to demonstrate both the truth of the Christian interpretation of the Hebrew Bible and what happens to you when you reject their Savior, right? Which gives rise to the whole class that we've been talking about it now. But that was then. This is now. Modernity is actually going to give birth to the Jewish question. And it does that because not so much of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment gives it as a philosophical sense. It's like, wow, if we're going to talk about humanity as a whole, where does the Jew fit? And we'll touch on that. We'll return to it with Montesquieu and Voltaire. And I'm going to address Chuck's uh, helpful criticism about Rousseau. Right? But, but for now, I actually want to give a little bit of the political context and remembering that when medieval society breaks down in Europe, democracy is not the next step. It's often forgotten when people like to sort of review the history of Europe that it wasn't like you came out of the dark age in the middle of, of uh, the sort of medieval Europe and stepped into liberal democratic society. In fact, good portions of Europe, of course, are still not in liberal democratic society. The model that lays between them is absolutism. And it's important to understand that we, who are by and large products of a liberal democratic society, tend to lump absolutism together with sort of like divine right monarchy, like sort of like medieval dark age rule because there wasn't the freedom of the individual that we see to be sort of the hallmark of modern society. But that's a mistake because the reality is in enlightened absolutism was the first model which really emerges. So I want to take a second and explain what that is because it's going to play into our story at the end of Mendelssohn's life. The term um, enlightened absolutism actually is the product of an essay by no, none less, no, no less than Frederick the Great, who ruled Prussia basically for the second half of the 18th century, from 1740 to 1786. And he wrote an essay basically defending this new system of government. And if you want to summarize what it was, it was actually Joseph II of Austria, Austria who said, everything for the people, nothing by the people. Right? Contrast that with two things. For I'll say it again. Everything for the people, that's good news, right? Nothing by the people. And that's the enlightened, everything for the people, absolutism, nothing by the people. Now, on one hand, that's certainly not the American you know, government of the people, for the people, by the people. Notice you'll see what that phrase, which was written not so long after this was said, you'll see what that phrase was pushing against. That's one hand. On the other hand, compare it to, say, the height of European divine right monarchy, which it was moving away from, which was, of course, you know, say, Louis XIV, the so-called Sun King, who said, I am the state. Right? So on one hand, you have, we're not in I am the state land anymore, where the monarch is the state in the end, and the people have only obligations to the monarch. The monarch has no obligations to the people. On the other hand, we're not in liberal democracy where it is government by the people of the people. It's government for the people, but not by the people. It lies right in the middle. And really, it, what's going to characterize enlightened absolutism is the idea that, that royal power, or absolute power, they are all monarchs at this point, but the theory continues. In many ways, um, Vladimir Putin sees himself as an enlightened absolutist. You know, it, it, uh, Trump, I don't actually think thinks that hard about theories of government. I think Putin is far more educated and probably thinks, well, I saw Shelley, I saw that, you know, but, but I don't think he thinks that hard about it. Um, but it, it, some of his advisors might. So, so to the enlightened absolutists, 
their power derives no longer from divine right. It's not that medieval religious structure, but rather from social contract, right? They, that's the Enlightenment, right? The contractarian thinkers, Locke's, right, uh, Hobbes and Rousseau in his own way. The, the idea is that the government has an obligation to the people, right? Which is what produces the sort of um, sense that they are in, that a, a monarch is entrusted with the power to govern. Right? And what really will define them is how much they actually embody the social principles of the Enlightenment in their practice. You know, when Voltaire fell out of favor in France, because France was a far from enlightened monarchy, even though its culture was the source of the French Enlightenment, of course, right? he actually flees to Frederick the Great in Prussia right? and lives with him. And he believed, Voltaire believed very firmly that enlightened monarchy was the only way for society to advance. Democracy at this point by most people is associated with mob rule. It's associated with chaos, which is why the French Revolution hit Europe like a ton of bricks. Um, but just a few things to understand about what enlightened uh, absolutism is, and then we'll, we'll move on from it. First of all, codification of law. The, a unification and codification of law. It's a process that's been going on in Europe for quite some time. We've actually referenced it even in context of the expulsion from Spain long ago, right? But, but to have a powerful state, you must have uniform, codified law and structures which can adjudicate. And in the ideal of the enlightened absolutists, those structures all answer to the king. There's no independent judiciary at this point in reality. It's already been born into the minds of Montesquieu, but not in reality. That's number one, codification of law, reforming property ownership. That's breaking down the remnants of feudalism that's still out there and the concentration of land into the hands of the nobility, and in particularly the church. They come gunning for the church, right? Because the church has huge land holdings throughout Europe, which gives them a lot of power as a secular force and is considered to be, um, to, uh, considered to be basically in unjust and, and parasitic. Um, they also are basically, like I said, trying to limit the power of the nobles to police and pass judgment on the peasants, right? We want one justice system centered in the king. Um, they're going to promote commerce, which is going to be good news for their toleration of the Jews. They're going to establish some measure of religious toleration because the church no longer dictates policy. Remember that medieval Jew hatred was that combination of economic and religious opposition. And last but certainly not least, they're going to sponsor cultural and educational activity. And that's going to have a very big impact on the Jews going forward. So that's like a, a very small window, which we will return to, of what um, enlightened absolutism looks like. And that shift toward a degree of tolerance, toward a deconstruction of the social and legal structures of the Middle Ages, will pose the Jewish problem. Because now where does the Jew fit? In the medieval world, the Jew fit in as a part of a corporate entity called the Jews, which were kept separate. Um, uh, Peter, I'm speaking specifically about the German states, but the model of enlightened absolutism actually will offer it. It spreads into Russia with Catherine the Great. Uh, there is a failed attempt with it in France, depending on what you think of Napoleon. But, but, but more importantly than anything else, what I want people to understand is that as the medieval structure breaks down and this new model of modernity, which is not democracy yet, right? That will be a failed attempt at that in France too. What, what it does is it poses a Jewish problem. Where does the Jew now fit? Remember I told you, the modernity poses a two-dimensional problem. 
place and identity. Right now we're talking about place. Where does a Jew fit? And then it allows us to quickly review these two sort of philosophical principles we saw in both Montesquieu and Voltaire. Right? Montesquieu basically said the Jew fits as a human being because Montesquieu believes that people are a product of their environment and, and the Jew, if reformed, will enter into society as an enlightened European. The, the short version of that is you're welcome to be a Jew in society so long as you check your culture at the door. And, and while that has many positive aspects, because he's tolerant and believes that the Jews can be human beings, you see the problem there. Because if a Jew wants to hold on to their culture, then perforce they have to hold on to the Middle Ages, which, by the way, is what the Orthodox world will do. To this day, in many respects, the Orthodox world remains a bastion of, middle, of like medieval thinking. And I say that without so pejorative. I mean, we could, we could mock if you want, but that's not my point. My point is um, medieval corporate thinking where we're not actually citizens of society, but rather are a separate entity that lives within a host society. That's where a lot of the problems of the relationship between the Orthodox world and modern society are rooted. Right? So that was Montesquieu. That was one option. Voltaire, what was the other option? Voltaire, we said, what was more of, uh, because of his belief about racism, polygenism, but also because of a, what seems to be a pretty deep-rooted dislike of the Jews, felt that the Jews were an immutable people. They were never going, they were an Asiatic people, or they were simply just bad, or however you want to phrase it. I'm not going to go back through. Um, I'm not going to go back through, but one thing is for sure, by the way, I see people are, are bothered by the video. Something I can do, which might help you, um, is you can pin my face in the middle of your screen. If you right-click on the picture of me speaking, it'll offer you the option to pin video, and then you'll see me large, and you'll see the other pictures of people sort of um, small up in the, uh, up in the side. That, that might help to the people who are asking questions. Um, because I, actually, it's helpful to me to see people's faces. If you don't want your video on, that's fine, but it's, it's quite helpful to me because then I can actually um, have a sense of interaction. Um, so otherwise, I, I love to talk to myself, but... <laughs> For an hour and 15 minutes, it's challenging. Um, so, so Voltaire, ultimately, if Montesquieu represents the option of assimilation, we spoke about Voltaire was the option of rejection, which ultimately leads to expulsion. And these are these two challenges that question of place poses to the Jews. And those of you who know European history know that actually the Jewish question begins as a question of modern society, becomes an actual Jewish question with, you know, with the Enlighteners and the Zionists asking, where do we exist? And then ultimately, what's the final solution to the Jewish question? It's, it's destruction, right? And that's not an accident that that language can be traced all the way through. Now, I do want to give credit to Chuck, um, who challenged me over the last week to think about Rousseau. I was familiar, if people are familiar with Rousseau, I'm not going to go into his history. I just want to note and honor the question. Rousseau is much more of a philo-Semite than these two models. I do not believe, however, Rousseau offers a third model of how Jews encounter modernity. Um, because while Montesquieu represents the assimilation track, check your culture at the door, you can be a human being, but not a Jew. And while Voltaire offers the sort of rejection, ultimately the expulsion track, the expulsion track that the Jew is an indigestible element in modern society who must be spit out, even though he doesn't say that, that's kind of where it goes. Rousseau had the sense that the Jews deserved a place of their own, what we would call a proto-Zionist. And we'll maybe speak about it more during the, um, during the Omer series. But the reality is, is that Zionism, the idea that the Jews should return and reconstitute themselves as a people in their own land, is irrelevant to European society at this point. And it remains largely irrelevant to the sort of enlightened Jewish world until basically Herzl. I mean, it'll have its rumblings, as we'll see. 
And certainly to religious Jewry, you know, they'll joke that the only thing that ever managed to unite the Orthodox and the Reformed Jews in Europe was their opposition to Zionism. Right? So, so we will see. So just to honor your challenge, Chuck, I think that Rousseau deserves more thought. Um, I agree with you. And it was, it was neglect to leave him out. And I did a little bit of research. But I still hold by my fundamental distinction that the Jewish encounter with modern European society basically had two paths until the third was born, which is Zionism. Um, okay. So that basically is the posing of the question of place. We're going to see, by the way, that Mendelssohn, in his classic sort of fashion, refuses to give in to either. He's not going to let be expelled like Voltaire. He sees himself as an enlightened European and, and fully participant within European society and wants such for his Jewish brethren. He's also not going to accept Montesquieu because he's certainly not interested in assimilation, despite the fact, and here, Abraham, your challenge came up, I have been quite sort of laudatory toward Mendelssohn because I see as an intellect and as a spiritual uh, individual, I see him as an incredibly important individual. But Avram pointed out in an email to me, which is something which people might not know, which is important for me to mention, that the majority, perhaps the significant majority of his grandchildren end up converting to Christianity. So that is important context for what is going to come next about whether the third way that Mendelssohn attempts to establish that a Jew can actually find place within modern society and a Jewish identity within modern society, whether it is a viable way. Fair enough, Avraham? You can just thumbs up or thumbs down. Um, okay, so that's the problem of place. The problem of identity is rooted in that definition of modernity, which I've given you over and over again, which is the uncoupling of knowledge from tradition. Right? For the Jews, we have been able to grapple with science with, with metaphysics, with foreign cultures, you know, whether it was the, the Persians, the Greeks, the, the, the Romans, the Spanish, that you fill in the blank. We've been able to do it because of our deep rooting in our tradition. Just remember, way back, I don't remember, I don't think it was this year, it might have been last, when we spoke about why did the German Jews call Ashkenaz Ashkenaz? Or why did the Spanish Jews, who became Spanish Jews, call the Spanish peninsula, right, Svarad? Ashkenaz and Sfarad are biblical terms. These are not the actual names of those places. And if you recall, what I told you then is because if I'm living in the Rhineland in the 12th century and I look out my window and I say what I see is, you know, the, 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 the Rhineland, it's Alsace, it's, and the people I'm looking at are, are German tribes, I'm off the map. I'm out of the book. Germany's not in the Bible. You know, the, 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 the Black Forest or whatever, you know, those things aren't in the Bible. But if I look out my window and I see Ashkenaz, that I managed to root my present experience in perhaps a mythic interpretation of my past. But nonetheless, there's a sense of continuity, which means that tradition is still relevant, which allows me to continue to grow and change without losing that rooting in the traditional narrative. Well, modernity is just too fast and furious for many people to do that. The uncoupling of knowledge from tradition poses a problem of identity, which we spoke about with the Hasidim, who are going to basically retreat in many ways into a deeper, more mythic, you know, like, like, na, 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 I can't hear you type, you know, relationship to modernity, which in many ways, again, it still characterizes many Orthodox thinkers, much less ultra-Orthodox, right? But Mendelssohn is not going to do that. He's going to attempt to hold the rope at both ends. Now, remember who he is, and this is, we're going to do a quick review of what we, what we saw in his life, and that'll t bring us right back into the flow. Remember, he is a master of European philosophy. He is the German Socrates, if you recall. And it's not disconnected from his Jewish culture or his Torah. 
Remember the book Faden. Remember I told you that Faden was a result of Mendelssohn lost his first child uh, basically immediately after birth. And this personal tragedy caused him to dig deeply into the question of the immortality of the soul, something which, of course, traditional Judaism takes for granted. But, but if you've ever looked into the question, it's not a particularly philosophical approach. It's just a truth. It's a doctrine which is supported by midrashic concepts, etc. There is quite a richness there. But it's not a philosophical exposition in the way that, that Mendelssohn needed the truth to be told. And so, therefore, he produces Faden, a book on the simplicity and immortality of the soul. And if you recall, he gives a tremendous gift to Europe. I told you guys that the book was printed multiple times within his own lifetime. It was one of the most popular German language works of his generation. Why? Because the modernity, which had undermined tradition within Europe, posed a problem, which is that basically people felt that there was an atheistic despair that was an option, or kind of a gross hedonism, just, you know, you only live once. We spoke about this, right? And, and, and Mendelssohn rejected these both. And we're going to see this return as we get deeper into his story. And it was, in fact, his commitment to God and Torah as absolute truth, together with his deep engagement of modern Enlightenment philosophy, that allowed him to produce Faden, which is a work that gave hope literally to tens of thousands. And so in this, we see that actually his success in holding the rope at both ends, being an enlightened philosopher and a traditional Jew, produced something which one on their own would never have done. He also was an advocate of what became known as natural theology. You know, today it's not so edgy to say that there's no Jewish God and no Christian God, but it's just a God of all humanity. Hopefully, we're all on board with that. But let me tell you something. In the 18th century, that was not a given by any means. My God was still bigger than your God. Not only is my God bigger than your God, but if my God is not bigger than your God, my God must be a false God. And if you recall, the whole Lavater affair, this attempt by this young, enlightened man to get Edelson to admit that Christianity was really true, it's lurking behind this whole Enlightenment culture. Is it truly a humanist Enlightened culture? Or is it really just a sort of uh, prettied up and watered down Christian culture that you're allowed to join. So Mendelssohn rejects that, but in doing so, he opens up this very deep question of how do you have a posture of a particularist religion in modern society? Now, this is a posture that, on one hand, is a great problem for us Jews, because we're the Jews, and you're not, and we have our tradition, and we believe God gave us the Torah at Sinai, and that's like a big deal, right? At the same time, it's not a big deal to us, because the truth is, I can say to almost any non-Jew, listen, just be a decent person, don't eat raw animals. That's actually become much more pressing these days than we thought it would ever be. But meaning there's like a very basic list of human attributes. And you can have your own relationship with God. You don't need to be a Jew. So there are many ways in which Judaism is uniquely positioned to answer the question of what it means to be an adherent of a revealed religion in a modern world. But, so, but Mendelssohn opens that new door of just saying, and by the way, there's only one God means my God, your God. Same God, right? So that's natural theology. He still sees the Torah as binding, though. Let's not forget this. And I have this great quote, which is somewhere here. Ah, here we go. I read it to you before, but I want to really drive it home because it's true his grandchildren and perhaps even some of his children convert. But he himself held by the following statement, I cannot see how those born into the house of Jacob can in any conscientious manner disencumber themselves of the law. No sophistry of ours can free us from the strict obedience we own, owe to the law. Right? That, that he was what we would today call an Orthodox Jew. 
and, and how he is going to reconcile that with one of the chief values of modernity, which is autonomy, right? The, the human attribute, the enlightened quality of the ability to choose one's actions, one's consciousness, one's faith, we're going to see at the end of our story. So all of these are ways in which he grapples with this new identity, because the other options are going to be full assimilation or retreat into a much more sort of medieval mindset, which is going to have its own cost when we see the reactionary stance of orthodoxy, as we'll speak about, I guess, in the next phase of the class. So, okay. And, and to give, if I'm going to give a phrase, what's his model? His model is to be a German of the Mosaic faith. He wants to be a religious Jew who is a German. And I see a lot of eyebrows going up because many of us are familiar, of course, of where that goes. But that's his model for now. Okay, before I launch into the second half of his story, questions or comments, and people can uh, raise their hand there if you want me to call, or yeah, Avram, you got something. Well, they don't exist yet. True. I mean, listen, I, I will say yes, and you have to remember that the model that one can be both a committed Jew of a particularist culture and a member of modern society is nonetheless the model that keeps the vast majority of American Jews connected to their faith. Meaning, it, it, and well, Israel's different because here we could speak about something called like a civil religion. Right, which is going to be part of the discussion that will come up uh, during the Omer of like, what's what you know. And, and, and it, by the way, we are about this far along the path of figuring out what it actually looks to be looks like to be a Jew in our own state. We're like this far along a path that's got like that much, which I think is hopeful because sometimes it feels like it's a mess, it's a disaster, it's abuse of power, everybody's from, everybody's fry, you know, all this stuff. Fine, you know, talk to me two hundred years. Um, so, but yeah, okay. Other questions or comments? Remember, you can raise your hand or you want to just speak out. We'll do our best to be polite. Okay. Um, you can also write stuff, remember, in the chat box there. You can write it to everybody or you can write it to me privately uh, and I will see it. I can't promise I'll see it sort of in real time, but I have one eye over there. I'm mastering the medium. Okay, great. So back to the flow of, of Mendelssohn's story. And, and I want to take us back to this two-front battle. It's kind of fun to be able to just, like, throw the papers over there and you can't see them. Um, I mean, it's not so fun. I have to clean up the bedroom later. So let's remember, Mendelssohn is fighting the battle for emancipation on two fronts. He's fighting European enlightened society in the struggle against this sort of assimilation or, you know, elimination model. And he wants to sort of put forward this sense of you can be a, a Jew of faith of you know mosaic persuasion of a German enlightened culture, but he's also fighting the internal battle with the Jews, many of whom, particularly amongst the religious and intellectual leadership, see nothing but a threat to traditional life in modernity. And like Avram's pointing out, they weren't wrong. <laughs> you know, the, the the question is, did did traditional Judaism survive? And that's a question that we're going to have to leave for later. And if it did survive, was the solution 
better than the problem. You know, that, that's, a, that's a pressing issue in many ways right now. So, okay, but, but what we're going to do now is we're going to take off on this, um, uh, this two-front battle, one against the social and civil exclusion that Jews are still suffering in European society, and one against basically rabbinic power of its day. Mendelssohn sees that one of the great challenges and one of the great barriers for Jews entering into enlightened society is the fact that the communal structure of European Jewry is held together through autocratic power whose primary tool is excommunication. And he's deeply challenged by the fact that in an enlightened society, secular European enlightened society, or Christian European enlightened society, which is moving toward individual autonomy and civil rights and, and limiting the ability of absolute power to exercise its will over the individual, particularly in matters of conscience, he sees the rabbinic structure on which European Jewry has been built for the last, say, 1,500 years, maybe 1,200, as a primary challenge to Jews entering into Enlightenment society. You understand the two-front battle there? So, so we'll, we'll, we'll take the external one first because it's a little bit less edgy, and we'll end with the, the internal battle. In 1799, Moses, Moses Mendelssohn got a letter from Serf Bir, Bir, Bir. It's spelled B-E-E-R, but he's a, he's a French Jew. He's the leader of French Jewry, in fact. Right? Uh, now, Serf Bir is the epitome of what we have up till now called the court Jew. You have to remember that French Jewry is in a bad state before the revolution in 1789. This is... He got the letter in 1779. So we're talking about 10 years before the French Revolution. French society in general was not doing so well. But the French Jewry in particular, it has a problem because its status as a community is still legally defined by the expulsion from 1394. Meaning, on a legal, there is no legal basis for Jews to be in France at all. And France at this point, despite the fact that it's sort of rotting from within, is still structurally a fairly powerful state. Right? Since Louis XIV built this sort of model of I am the state, the power concentrated in the monarchy is extreme. And therefore, even though Jews technically have no status from a legal standpoint, practically speaking, how are they allowed to be there? Because they cut a deal with the king. As long as the king tolerates them, legal schmiegel, I am the state. Right? Um, so, but the Jews were all expelled like I said, at the end of the 14th century. They've been drifting back in over the centuries um, largely as new Christians, as conversos, right? There's a whole sort of uh, a Spanish origin or Portuguese Spanish origin community, uh, particularly in the, let's think about it, south, that's the southwest of France. Um, they, I get confused directions, right? But France really gets a Jewish problem in 1648. If you recall, 1648 was this year of the Treaty of Westphalia. It was the end of the Thirty Years' War. Um, but in, as part of the breakup of Europe, which was, and the reformation of Europe in its encounter with modernity in 1648, Louis XIV, who was the king of France at the time, annexed Alsace-Lorraine from Austria. It was a whole reordering of the map. And why does that matter for us? Because Alsace-Lorraine had a whole bunch of good old-fashioned Ashkenazi Jews. See, the new Christians that had drifted into France over those centuries, first of all, nominally were pretending to be Christians, even though many of them returned to Jewish practice, number one. Number two, they were cultured and sophisticated. They spoke French, Spanish, Portuguese. Number three, they dressed like Europeans, 
because they had lived in this sort of pseudo-European culture on the margins. Whereas what happened when, when France annexed Alsace-Lorraine is they got a bunch of bearded Ashkenazi Jews, right, who by the mid-18th century will number between 40 and 50,000. It's a significant, as opposed to the few thousand sort of new Christian conversos, we're talking about tens of thousands of Jews, right, who have been, as every other major Jewish community within Europe, pushed into the realms of sort of horse trading, money lending, pawned all the things which are emblematic of either the hated Jewish nature, Voltaire, or Montesquieu, the product of oppression. Either way, they're not the Jews anybody wants. And that's how France ends up with a Jewish problem. And basically, they had managed to negotiate that Jewish problem through the, the medium of court Jews. There had always been Jewish purveyors, people who were able through their sort of either their uh, sort of ability in trade or their personal wealth and liquidity. We've spoken about the very important role that Jewish liquidity plays, right, for many of the monarchs and princes of Europe because they had huge land holdings, but they were always cash poor, right? Um, and Serf Burr, at this point in 1779, is the court Jew. He's the Jewish representative to crown. Remember, officially he's just the king's purveyor. But in, unofficially, he's the representative to the Jew because in recognition of his service to the royal army, Bear was actually given citizenship, French citizenship, by Louis XVI in 1775. Now, citizenship doesn't mean what it means in modern society. It means an official document of toleration from the king when the time when Jews are officially not allowed in the country. And he used that status basically to wage an unrelenting struggle on behalf of his brothers and sisters. You'll recall that that model of court Jew was very useful to the monarchs and princes of Europe. Remember, Jews, loyal, diligent, right? uh, you know, very successful, and easily discarded. So in this case, it's not just easily discarded, but easily rewarded. Sir Burr could have demanded millions. He could have demanded all kinds of privileges for himself. What he did was he demanded protection for his people, which was a coin which for the king was relatively easy to pay. So, so Baron, though, at this point, realizes in 1779 that, that, that uh, the current age requires a different degree of argument in defense of the Jews. And he recognized further, he was a cultured man, that the road to influencing the French Enlightenment, which was starting to really have impact on the rulers of France, ran through Berlin. And so he writes this letter in 1779 to Moses Mendelssohn requesting that he help him craft some sort of argument on the basis of Enlightenment ideals for why the Jews should be officially tolerated within France. Now, Mendelssohn actually doesn't take the challenge because he says better this should come from a Christian than a Jew. I mean, he uses his own status as a member of the Berlin Enlightenment and hands it off to a man named Christian Wilhelm von Damm. Von Damm was a Christian scholar. He was a member of a senior government official in the Prussian government and also a member of the Berlin Enlightenment circles, which is how Mendelssohn knew him and which is why he even took up the challenge because Dom agreed not just to write a memorandum on the immediate question of why the Jews should be allowed to live a decent life within France, but he used it rather as an opportunity to address the issue of the Jews and the state of the Enlightenment in Europe as a whole. The Jews at this point are already seen as the canary in the mine shaft. Right? Not in the sense we're used to thinking of it in terms of like when things get bad, it gets bad for the Jews first, but rather as the test case. Is this Enlightenment thing going to work? And if so, how do we do it? Many, many thinkers were aware that the way in which European society dealt with the Jews would be the way in which they entered modernity, which, by the way, should put a big red light on your, 
on your dashboard because the end of modernity is arguably Auschwitz. And after that, it's a postmodern world. I'm not saying the end in the sense the inevitable product. I'm just saying if you're going to mark a difference between the, the modern and the postmodern world, I would say the Gesa Auschwitz is about as good as you're going to do in Central and, and Western Europe. Right? Which means that this question of what modernity is and how Europe deals with it doesn't really end well. Um, what the Jew is in postmodern Europe is you know, yet to be established. So Von Damm, like, like I said, takes the, takes the uh, challenge upon himself, and the result is a pamphlet which is entitled Concerning the Amelioration of the Civil Status of the Jews. And at first glance, it looks like a big victory. I mean, Serf Burr, I imagine, was quite excited because Dom basically exists, insists that a state which is looking to embody Enlightenment principles cannot treat the Jews with the barbarity, as he calls it, that, that, that characterizes the Middle Ages. And, riding on the coattails of Montesquieu, he basically says that any of the characteristics which people associate with the Jews, which, as he says, makes them incapable of making any real contribution to the state, right? Dubris, morality of the merchants, their over-concentration in trade, their deficiency in secular general education, their physical weakness. He says they're all a product of the very discrimination of the European states, which has pushed them into this sort of twisted Jew status. Now, again, that may not sound so nice to you and I, but that is Montesquieu, likely he was quoting, <laughs> you know? Um, he understood that, that, that discrimination produces its own product. And, and so therefore, he said that the emancipation of the Jew and their, therefore their integration in a productive manner into the state will depend upon the Enlightenment. And his famous quote is, the Jew is more a man than a Jew. And that therefore, the Jew could be reformed in order to fit into enlightened society. Of course, what's he going to insist upon? That we check our culture at the door. That, that, the, that the model of enlightened society is not the multicultural model. That's a postmodern product. Don't forget that. Somebody pointed out Wilson in last class. I forget when it was. Right? Um, but the modern model of tolerance is the melting pot. But the melting pot is not you take all these pieces of society, put them in, and something new emerges. There's always a, 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 an ideal, a model. In America was white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture, right, the founding fathers of America. In Europe at this point, it's enlightened Christian culture. So the idea is that, oh yeah, tolerance for sure, says Dom. The Jew should be let in and he owns, and it's very deep that he owns the guilt of European culture of the Middle Ages for producing this thing that they now despise. But don't forget that, that what he then expects is that the Jew once allowed to enter will become just like us in enlightened European sort of like deist, mild Christians. Um, so Dom publishes his memorandum in Berlin in 1781, only two years after Serf Bear sent the request to Moses Mendelssohn. And a few months later, the Emperor Joseph II of Austria issues the first in what are known as the uh, Edicts of Tolerance for, for communities under his rule. Right? And Joseph II, if you recall, I said, was one of the chief enlightened absolutists of Central Europe at this time. Now, He'd certainly read Dom's memorandum and took it to heart. But if you want to understand why the Edict of Tolerance was issued by the Emperor of Austria, all you need to do is look at one of the key lines of its introduction, where he says, this policy paper, meaning the Edict of Tolerance, aims at making the Jewish population useful 
to the state. So this is like, here, I'll take Montesquieu and I'll raise you one. It's no longer just, okay, because of my enlightened ideals, I feel that it's intolerable to treat the Jews with the barbarity that characterize the Middle Ages. That's what Dom said. Now, political power reads that and says, yeah, you know what? These Jews could be a lot more useful because they are diligent, hardworking, quite talented. We just need to reform them in order that they can be useful for the state. That's why the Edict of Tolerance will open up whole new realms of economic activity to the Jews. It'll lift some of the more degrading status elements. Like, at this point, Jews are still legally required to wear the Jewish badge and to pay a special head tax, which are levied on Jews and cattle. You know, that's how degraded the status was in law, right? Um, and one of its biggest innovations was to open schools and universities to Jews, which is one of the reasons the Jews now will begin to flock into the universities to the point where the, the Europeans will quickly in the coming decades try to throw down quotas and, and keep the Jews out because they literally will flood the universities, right? Um, but it also requires that Jewish languages be replaced with the national language of the country. Remember, enlightened absolutism is a homogenizing force. We want them to be human beings and Europeans, not Jews. Official documents, school textbooks were no longer going to be permitted to be printed in Hebrew or Yiddish. Right? And, lest you really mistake this as enlightened, sort of uh, just a good-heartedness, right after the Edict of Toleration was issued, what would you think would happen with all the Jews of Europe who didn't live in Austria? They're all going to come pouring in, right? So therefore, there was immediately following it a severe restriction placed on Jewish immigration to Austria. Focusing, of course, on those Jews who could make a productive contribution to the state. This is enlightened absolutism. It's the use of tolerance in service of the state. Now, you could say it's better than the Middle Ages, and I would agree with you, but don't make any mistake. This is not an idealistic opening of the doors of modernity to sort of a, a tolerance for other, right? It's enlightened absolutism as its best. Utilitarian service of the state. The Enlightenment is desirable insofar as it is useful for making people productive to the state. So the Dom's plan and Joseph II's Edict of Tolerance, which wasn't a direct result but certainly was influenced by it, are, are basically the first signs of civil emancipation. We'll see the first sort of full-scale civil emancipation will come in the wake of the French Revolution, right? And we'll see that, I guess, when we pick up next semester. Um, and they do offer real horizons, new horizons, to the life of Jews in modern Europe, but do not miss the fact that they basically made the Jews check their culture at the door. So Mendelssohn, you can imagine, was not so pleased with the results of his request to Dom. And his, he wrote a response. The bottom line of his response was, thank you, but no thank you. And what's interesting to us, especially those of us who've been together for a while, is that Mendelssohn's response was written in a very interesting form. He wrote a translation into German and a new preface to Menashe ben Israel's Vindication of the Jews. Now, it was this semester, I believe, that we spoke about this. If you recall, Menashe ben Israel was the leader, one of the leaders, rabbinic leaders, of um, a, the Converso community and, and natural-born Jewish community within Amsterdam in the mid-17th century. And he was the one in his messianic vision who felt that we were at a turning point in the messianic era, and in order that the Jews actually returned to our home, we had to first be 
spread abroad in every land as his fulfillment of his reading of the biblical verses. And where was the one place that the Jews were completely excluded from on the planet at that point in his eyes? England, right? So that's why he fought to get the Jews to, uh, sort of to return to England. And Menachem Ben-Israel wrote this vindication of the Jews, which was sort of like the keystone of his argument for getting Jews re-entry into England and therefore, you know, sort of triggering the Messianic redemption. Now, Mendelssohn is far from sharing this Dutch rabbi's Messianic motivation, but he understood that making emancipation contingent on Jews abandoning their culture was a disaster. And so he wrote his critique of Dom's analysis as an introduction, a translation and introduction to Menashe ben Israel's work, Vindication of the Jews. And, and based, first of all, he expresses horror at Dom's account of all the innumerable flaws of the Jews' way of life. Because remember, Mendelssohn still has a traditionalist side. And furthermore, he bitterly disputes this notion that civil rights should be contingent upon a fundamental regeneration, which is what Dom really calls it. In fact, Mendelssohn expressed the fact that he suspected Dom's premise, which linked emancipation to regeneration, was basically the old hatred in new clothes. Right? He notes that in Menashe ben Israel's time, people sought to transform Jews into fellow Christians. It was a conversionist culture. And now, here, 100 plus, 120 years later, they were going to transform Jews into useful citizens. You see the comparison? And he, uh, the quote from the piece is very powerful. He says, it's curious to observe how prejudice assumes the form of all ages on purpose to oppress us and puts obstacle in the way of our civil admission. And that is a phrase that should echo quite strongly in our day. In every generation, there's been somebody who thought he was going to solve the Jewish problem and the world would no longer hate us. So what Mendelssohn is pointing out is that in the time of Menashe ben Israel, it was a religious hatred of the Jews and therefore people thought they could solve that problem by converting the Jews. That the Jews weren't interested in, it created a lot of conflict. Mendelssohn says, in my era, people want to solve the hatred of the Jews by regenerating us into, you know, enlightened Europeans. We don't want to just give up our culture. Lo and behold, they still hate us. And today we see that the world, when we had the audacity to try to reform ourselves as a nation, with all the bumps and warts and the problems, trust me, I know them quite well. Um, nevertheless, now the world hates us for being nationalists. It's like, hmm, I see a pattern. <laughs> you know? So, so says Mendelssohn, Jews should be accepted without demanding they change their way of life as a precondition for civil acceptance. Because, furthermore, he says the burden lies in the state. It's the state that has to take the first steps by ending all restrictions and dis discrimination that have been imposed on the Jews. And then, he says, the Jews will themselves willingly adopt the values of tolerance and gratitude for the love which is now being shown to them. It's a, he basically says we should have entry into Enlightenment society without any preconditions, but I believe we will then regenerate ourselves. And this, Abraham, is in many ways the flaw that lies at the heart of his thinking that leads down the path that you're pointing out. He doesn't disagree with the fact that the Jews need reform. He disagrees that that reform should be driven by the non-Jewish world as a precondition for our admittance into civil society. So, so um, like I said, he's fighting, Mendelssohn is fighting this two-front battle, feeling quite a bit of despair at this point with the external battle. And so he, he dismisses Dom's proposal as basically old hate in new clothes. 
and he proposes his own plan, actually, for political and economic integration into European society. And then he turns his focus on what he sees to be the other major obstacle to Jewish emancipation, which is internal and not external. That's the Jews' own devotion to their autonomous communal organization, which was the mainstay of life in the medieval era. Now, the thing is, is that Dom, to Mendelssohn's horror, saw maintenance of Jewish autonomy as a key element that would help the Jews transition toward emancipation. Remember, Dom is writing in an era of, of enlightened absolutism. So the idea that the Jews have a power structure in place that can force them to do something is a bonus. What he wants to do is basically subvert the power structure and get the Jewish power structure in service of enlightenment ideals. Mendelssohn says, no, the primary value of enlightenment existence is autonomy. Give us freedom and we'll do what's right. He's an optimist, right? Um, and basically... Mendelssohn questions not only the external oppression, but the internal role that rabbinic authority plays in enforcing religious and communal norms. He believes that if Jews are accepted as members of a civil society, there won't be any need to maintain communal autonomy. Judaism, he sees as a community of faith, where member membership is voluntary, coercion is obsolete, but everyone is obligated by God, member. Now, it's, it's worth thinking on this. And this, Avraham, I'm sorry to keep picking on you, but you brought up the challenge. You know, the, one of the questions that orthodoxy avoids at all cost, and really I've only seen rare addressings of it a little bit more today than even 10 years ago, is when emancipation finally comes and the gates of the ghetto opens up where the Jews are ghettoized and the gates of society opened up and the Jews are allowed in, why is it that so many Jews chuck their tefillin in the river and run off to medical school? Why do people on such a large scale abandon Torah? If Torah was given to us by God, it's the best thing since sliced bread where the chosen people fill in the blank. Meaning a religious jury has to answer that question. You know, and to Mendelssohn, he believed because like, well, I'm a Jew and the Torah is glorious and I can see it through a philosophical lens. I can see it through a traditional lens. I don't need anybody to force me to be Jewish. The reality is when many people lost that external coercion, they gave up on Judaism. And one can say that that's a flaw within Judaism itself. One can say it's a flaw within our spiritual and educational leadership. One can say whatever you want, but it's, it's a question that has to be addressed. And orthodoxy is not addressing it. If you look particularly, I'm going to deviate for a moment into modern politics. If you look particularly almost across the board, religious political power in Israel is bound up with religious coercion. Now, even though you could say it's a democratic process to pass laws about the fact that you can't sell chametz on Pesach or to, to say that you can't have public transportation on Shabbat, democratic process, I have no problem with it. If the Knesset votes for it, fine. But just notice, that's an attempt to use power to enforce religious norms. As opposed to I mean, in our modern society, you can make a very good argument for the fact that people need a day off, right? Are we making that argument? Are we, are we able to articulate the power of Shabbat as a saving grace for a 24-7 culture, which is basically eating the heart out of human being, right? Or are we using power politics and coalition, you know, dynamics in order to... You know, and which, of course, many people recognize actually pushes some 
further away from religion. So Mendelssohn sensed this problem, and in many ways he was the first to really own it, saying on one hand the Torah is binding, on the other hand if we enforce it externally as binding, what it does is it just creates a pressure that will cause people to flee. The fact that he failed, and he failed, to, to attach people deeply to the Torah he saw, doesn't necessarily mean that his observation was untrue. It means that whatever approach he took was either inappropriate to the context in which it found itself or simply wrong. You guys with me? Thumbs up, thumbs down? Okay. Um, so, basically, Mendelssohn concludes this preface, this the preface to the vindication, after basically deconstructing Dom's whole plan and basically saying... We're, we, we deserve to be part of European society because we're human just like you, and it shouldn't be contingent upon our regeneration. But he concludes it with an emotional call to the rabbis of Europe, asking them basically to lead the Jews toward enlightenment and insisting that if they released the tools of communal control, they would only deepen people's attachment to Torah. Number one, he calls it the avenging sword, which madness only thinks it can manage surely. And he saw the fact that, that if you have power of coercion and you think that that is going to enforce people's attachment to Torah, what you will do is cut them off, not prevent them from going. Right? And then he says the following. He says, he pleads that basically freedom from external slavery is now possible. And therefore, the time has come to give up internal subjugation. Notice the observation. Again, leave aside the idealism, etc. It's just an observation. When we lived in an oppressive external situation... It may have been good, it may have not been good that, you, that the rabbinic authority was able to coerce. But now that people can be free in their external civil existence, what are you going to do by trying to, to enforce an internal coercion? He says the nations are now tolerating and bearing with one another, while, while to you also they're showing kindness and forbearance. Okay, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but he says, Oh, my brothers, follow the example of love the same as you have before followed that of hatred. Imitate the virtues of the nations whose vices you hitherto thought you must imitate. If you would be protected, tolerated, and indulged, protect, tolerate, and indulge one another. Love, and ye will be loved. Right? A beautiful sentiment, but he completely failed. The rabbinic leadership was not only interested, not, sorry, not only not interested in taking a proactive stance in inviting enlightenment, but they were going to be deeply reactionary, as we'll see with the birth of orthodoxy. Nonetheless, one thing it was, Mendelssohn was absolutely correct, that perforce the entry of Jews into the modern state was going to be bound up with the complete collapse of all the old communal structures. But the reality is, is that the rabbinic class, in its inability to either see or accept that, in many ways made itself irrelevant to the vast majority of Jews. Right? We've spoken a few times about the, the end of the rabbinic era. Today, with basically no exception except for people who feel trapped within small communities, rabbinic authority is a matter of consent. Right? Even within the state of Israel, where politically religious parties actually have civil power, it's in a very limited realm. And that happened. Mendelssohn saw it happening. And the question of whether that process was managed in a way which was sort of positive, constructive, etc., is a question I leave to you. We'll return to it, by the way, when we pick up the class again in the fall with orthodoxy. But for now, there's only one more real battle that lays on a horizon, which is great because we have plenty of time to do it. So before I go on to the next phase, questions or comments 
about um, this section of the, you know, Serf Baron and uh, Von Damm and Mendelssohn and, and the engagement with the question of emancipation. Yeah, Brian. I'll get you next, Henry. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, well, I threw it out there hoping that no one would take the bait, but I could trust you. Go for it. Um, no, but I think that the arc, I mean, inevitability I can't speak to. What I can speak to is the reality is that, that, that Jewish life in Europe, which at a certain point, of course, was the dominant Jewish life of the planet, is essentially no longer a driving force in Jewish existence. And it took one of two paths. Well, to one of three. Assimilation, elimination, or immigration. So I don't know if it was inevitable, but that is kind of how it played out. All right, Henry. I don't think, I, I can't speak to inevitability because I don't have the divine perspective. Yeah, I'm, listen, I'm, a, I'm a student of history. I'm into 2020 hindsight, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Okay, um, Henry, yeah. Henry, you're, you're patient there. Thank you. Well, I mean, I want to sidestep the question of slavehold, although I, you know, I, would, I would point out that, um, that the tactic of maintaining authority, and particularly maintaining that authority through claiming both religious and intellectual elitism, was extremely successful in Europe for a thousand years or more. Meaning, we would not be sitting here having this critical conversation if the rabbinic class of both Europe and North Africa and, and, and the Middle East had not been willing to take the reins of power to maintain a, a sometimes incredibly rigid, although it's other times incredibly diverse and, and complex, stance on the binding nature of Torah. The, my point that I'm bringing out here, that Mendelssohn saw change on the horizon. He saw that modernity was fundamentally different than our encounter with the Greeks or the Romans or the Christians. And felt that therefore we needed to change tack. What I would say, and this is, I, I shout this from the rooftop as much as I can, if, anybody wa if any rabbi wants to really survive as a leader, they need to let go of their position as an authority figure and re-engage with their fundamental stance as an educator. Be because because e e if you can educate people, they will always be capable as autonomous beings of holding complexity. If you insist on being an authority figure, you must keep them constrained, which is where I think the slavehold phrase came from. You must keep them constrained, and you must decide, even with the best of intentions, what they can and cannot handle. And that's just a recipe for disaster, particularly in an increasingly porous world like our own. That's the quick answer. Yeah, Chuck.
I'll get you next resume. This was, this was really the beginning. The, the Edict of Tolerance is really the beginning. The next phase is going to be France, and it will be Napoleon when he sort of takes the ideals of the French Revolution, so to speak, and reorganizes the political structure of Europe that will really spread this simple notion that the Jews are human beings across Europe. And as we see the way it plays out, it doesn't go so deep, <laughs> you know? But that's, that's the, the quick answer. Yeah, Rosemary. You have to unmute. Just hit the space bar. There you go. Uh-huh. How does the emotion of anti-Semitism fit into all this? That's great. I will give you a, a very brief answer because it's a, quite a complex question. I mean, you guys have probably heard me say many times that in, in my eyes, the, the embodiment of the opposition to the Jews takes different forms in different eras. If you remember, just to take you on a trip way back to the Greco-Roman pre-Christian period, the Jews were the indigestible element of empire. When the Romans and the Greek culture were attempting to organize what they knew to be the world into one model, the Jews, and remember the Pax Romana for many people, though they had been beaten into it, was a decent life. The Jews had not one, not two, but three Roman Jewish wars. Right? Why? Because we were obsessed with this notion that, that control over our own geography was necessary for our theological vision. Right? Sovereignty over geography equals theology. That doesn't go well with the empire. So therefore, we were that indigestible element in Rome. That transmuted once Christianity adopted the Roman Empire and became an even more universalist vision, because now it's no longer territorial, it's theological and conceptual. The whole world in the classic Christian vision should be Christian. So there, we were the obstinate refusers of salvation. Right? We're no longer the indigestible element of empire, were the obstinate refusers of salvation. And that basically carried through the Jew hatred of the Middle Ages. And we spoke about the fact that it was primarily embodied as a religious opposition and economic, because the embodied element never disappears. It's no longer territorial, because we're no longer a sovereign state. But we still have a, a physical embodiment in the world. Therefore, it's an economic opposition. In modernity, with emancipation, the opposition to the Jews now will embody itself as basically a labeling of alien other. Meaning, you could assimilate entirely and hopefully become just like us in our modern, enlightened world. Or there will be that Voltaire streak which says, no, actually, it's impossible. They are alien other. You know, we, you know, and by the way, and then the racial element, the scientific racial element, will become the embodied opposition. You know, the others don't go away. Classic religious hatred of the Jews is alive and well in many places today. The economic opposition, go on the Internet. Everybody, you know, like the Rothschild conspiracy theories are actually getting more common right now with the coronavirus, right? But the modern era will add to that this sense that we are simply an alien element to modern society. We will hold on to the medieval mentality or we are racially simply an immutable substance, right? The, in that the, the eugenics of the Nazis, which in many ways will become the height of modern. And here's the kicker if you want to hear the full thing and then we'll get back into the flow. The question is, what's the postmodern opposition to the Jews look like? Because now we're territorially reconstituted, but the world is no longer trying to make a sing single world. We are culturally distinct, but the world is no longer actually trying to make a homogenous culture. I'll tell you very simply, and we can discuss it at length another time, is that we're the story that just won't die. 
See, because of the postmodern world, it's all about the death of the grand narratives. The theological, political, philosophical narratives, which have now been exposed to be simply attempts at power manipulation. But we're a story that will, just won't die. I mean, we're, we're here in the rebuilt Jerusalem. We're speaking about the values which sound both appealing and horrifying. They're challenging to the sort of postmodern hedonism and to the sort of, sort of like skeptical, atheistic, relativistic. You know, we, we are the story that just won't die. Also because we don't fit any story because we're going to have all those arguments amongst ourselves. There is a God. There isn't a God. We are the Jews. We're not the Jews. We were chosen. We weren't chosen. And at the end of the day, we'll say, but wait, we're all the Jews here. We have one story. So, so the reality is, if I could tell you what the origins of Jew hatred really were, then I would probably be able to bring the Messiah. You know? But that can tell you how it's been embodied through time, which tells us a little bit about what to do with it. That's the brief answer. Okay, can we get last piece here? I've got 25 minutes. Other questions or comments that are people are really critical? Anything out there? Don't forget, you can also write stuff down in the chat box here. Um, so, okay. So the last major controversy of, um, of uh, Mendelssohn's life abound up with a man named Naftali Herz Wellesley, or Wessel, depending on um, which part of his name, which reading of his name you go. He was born in 1725, lives all the way to 1805. And um, he was born in Hamburg. He grows up in Copenhagen. His father was the purveyor to the king, classic, elite, Jewish. He was educated in the rabbinic tradition, in fact, himself had smicha. Um, you know, in many ways, certain historians point to Naftali Herz Wellesley as, uh, Wesley, sorry, not Wellesley, Wesley, um, as one of the origins of modern Hebrew literature. He's a poet, a translator, he's a biblical commentator. He's bound up with that project of Mendelssohn's that I mentioned, but we didn't go into in depth, which was this translation of the Hebrew Bible into German, which is called the Biur, it's a translation and commentary. And that's really how the two of them become um, associated. Now here's the thing, is that, that of all the important Hebrew writers that are gathering in Berlin in the late 18th century and becoming this Berlin Enlightenment, the Jewish Berlin Enlightenment, Wesley actually belongs to the much more conservative camp. He's a traditional Jew, perhaps in many ways more traditional than Mendelssohn. Nevertheless, because of that, He's well aware of the challenges that the traditional community faced, and he singled out the educational system. Unlike Mendelssohn, who was a sort of a political philosopher who was looking toward rabbinic authority, Wesley singles out the educational system as the primary barrier to enlightenment. So he gets to Berlin in, in around 1778, and not long after arriving, he writes a poem called Mahalel Rea, Praise of a Friend. All right? It's a, basically a poetic praise of Moses Mendelssohn, and his goal was to attract people as subscribers for the coming publication of the Bior, of this translation and, and uh, commentary in German on the Hebrew Bible. But he didn't limit himself to translating, sorry, to praising the translator. He says the following in this poem, Ignorance has become widespread among our people, so they know not, nor do they comprehend, the difference between the teaching of the ancients and the teachings of the later generations. And if they think it is a simple matter, to study the Bible. You know, and then he goes on to lash out at religious teachers who teach without knowing how to teach, who simply feel that because of their knowledge, they are actually educators, which is a very big difference, as I'm sure many of you know. And furthermore, their mistaken emphasis on the Talmud, these should sound familiar in terms of the classic attacks of what will later be characteristic of the Enlightenment on the religious world. He says basically the rabbis are responsible for the low state of Jewish education. 
that the people who were meant to be the educators have actually become the cause of a low state of Jewish education. Um, and he takes even a further step. He says because of that poor religious education, there's been a religious decline in general amongst German Jewry. And basically, the rabbis are to blame for the breakdown of people's attachment to Torah. Because remember, Wesley at this point is a traditional Jew. He's concerned about the fact that people are starting to just drift away. The more that the civil restrictions are taken away, the more they drift away from traditional life. Why? Because they were poorly educated, he says. They, they, they basically don't have a real attachment to Torah. And therefore, when their communal structure is no longer holding them in place, they will drift away. It's an important observation. Now, he was in the midst of basically um, an inner struggle, which in many ways is characteristic of this Berlin Haskalah, this Berlin Enlightenment altogether. Because they were the generation of transition. They were all universally the products of traditional religious education. That was all that was available to Jews at the time. They may have, in their private sense, had tutors who taught them Latin and German, etc., but they were the products of traditional rabbinic education. right? And so therefore, in the beginning at least, their goal was to harness all these glories of in the Enlightenment culture that they encountered in service of the Torah. Right? And... But what they found was that traditional society didn't want them. In fact, traditional society saw them as a threat. And therefore, that bounds of traditional society began to chaff. Because as they found these glories of the Enlightenment and wanted to bring them almost as treasures back to the very teachers and the cultures that produced them, and they found that those, that those teachers in that culture rejected any source of knowledge outside of Torah and refused to engage in the critical self-examination, which was one of the cornerstones of enlightenment culture well that meant that the only place for them was outside you understand in their own way they were being asked to check not their culture but their personal conscience at the door in order to remain within traditional society and in many ways this is the dynamic which will characterize the next 150 years of european jewish culture that basically you can get into the Enlightenment culture if you're willing to check your traditional Jewish culture at the door. But if you happen to find something in that Enlightenment culture and you want to get, stay within the traditional culture, you're going to be asked to check your conscience and your Enlightenment culture at the door. It's true there will be people, notably like the, of Shimshon Raphael Hirsch and others, who will try to forge a path that it combines them, Mendelssohn also. But the question of whether they succeed is one we will leave to next semester. For now that um, just remember that as Enlightenment is joined by now the first signs of actual civil emancipation, the conservative rabbis, small c conservatives, right, um, are going to see, begin to see the social restrictions that have been placed on them in the Middle Ages as actually an assistance to them in their attempts to hold back non-Jewish culture. And therefore, you have to appreciate the struggle that people like Mendelssohn and Wesley will feel when they see that the wisdom of the Torah and the wisdom of the world can be joined. Not only can be, but in their eyes, must be. And the, the key question that they're all going to have to deal with for themselves is, of course, really the only question when it comes to learning different modes of thought, which is what comes first, right? That it, is Torah learning the meat and enlightenment culture the spice? Or is sort of... A, the universalist philosophy actually the source of true human knowledge 
which is supplemented by the particular wisdom of the Torah. And, and, and when, when you ask this as an educator, when, listen, for Mendelssohn, when you ask it as a philosopher, he could dance at two weddings. Because, you know, a philosopher is meant to be able to see things from two sides. When you ask the question as an educator, that becomes far less possible. As an educator and as a person who was educated in two worlds, I mean, I grew up, I don't know how well people know, I went to secular schools all the way through grad school. Now, I came from a, a very deeply attached, uh, big C conservative Jewish family, but my Jewish education, which for that world I think was decent, paled in comparison to my secular education. Later in my life, I came to Torah learning and I came to a much more traditional way of life, but it's important to remember that, you know, the developmental psychologists will tell you that up to a certain age, children learn everything as a sponge. They just take it all in. That's why young children can learn multiple languages through exposure. Whereas at a certain point, your ability to learn multiple languages, for most people, some people maintain it, but for most people, freezes. And what happens is instead of absorbing everything at once, particularly when it comes to languages, you begin to do what's called coding and decoding. Right? Instead of, when I, if, I, if I had the ability to speak to my five-year-old in Hebrew, English, and French, they'll just secure it all as information, and the brain actually manages to sort it. There are challenges there, but, but, um, but I have multilingual children. Uh, you know, what happens at around 12, 10, 11, it depends on the, 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 the person, is one language becomes dominant, and the other languages, which you can continue to learn, but there's a process of coding and decoding. I hear the foreign language, I, I sort of decode it into my native language, and then I recode my native language into the foreign language. And true fluency is when you're able to actually break through that once again later in life, and you now truly have two languages. Why am I telling you this? Because this is the problem that an educator faces when he moves out of the, the theoretical realm of Mendelssohn and the philosophy into the realm of Wesley and education. So I'm not go if I'm going to teach you what is the foundation of knowledge? Is it the Torah? And that's how you come to know the world. And then you are able to relate to philosophy and integrate philosophy through that fundamental structure, which I'm going to give you from an early age. Or is the fundamental education what we would call a humanist, universalist education? And then at a certain point, I will introduce you to Torah, and then you will come to know Torah within that context. You understand the challenge? Now, historically, in European Jewry, the answer was very simple because it was only Torah. And most people were never even exposed to the externals, even though we know, particularly in the Spanish-Jewish tradition, that there was a deep philosophical tradition, etc. I mean, Ashkenazi culture, rooted all the way back in the Tosfists and the real origins of, of true Ashkenazi culture, the rejection of external knowledge has, has been almost complete. We've seen personalities along the way who, for whom that was not so. But by and large, certainly the educational approach was there's Torah and then there's like other things. So, so, so what Wesley was interested in was resolving this problem. And in, if you look at his early writings, it's clear that he saw Torah as the meat and secular knowledge as spice. Like I said, he came from the traditionalist perspective. But in 1782, he made a very public about face. You know, because Mendelssohn, when the Edict of Toleration was issued by Joseph II of Austria in 1782, he valued it as a move toward emancipation. But he condemned that clause of the Edict of Tolerance, which conditioned basically entry into civil society on the transformation of Jewish education 
and thus Jewish culture. Remember, Mendelssohn rejected this. He said, we deserve to be civil society regardless what we do. But Wesley actually had no such qualms. He, in fact, saw the insistence on the transformation of Jewish education as a precursor to emancipation, as an incredible opportunity. So therefore, in response to the edict, he published his own pamphlet, which was entitled Divrei Shalom Ve'emet, Words of Peace and Truth. Any bonus question? Anybody remember where that phrase is from? We recently heard it. Divrei Shalom Ve'emet. Anybody? It's the letter that, that Mordechai and Esther sent out to the Jews. Um, so, what, and what does he say in this? It's a call to the Jewish community of Austria, which had just been offered limited civil emancipation, but that was contingent upon transforming their educational system. It was a call to them to willingly embrace all of the demands that the emperor of Austria had made in the edict to open German language schools for their children, to begin to teach them enlightenment knowledge, right? Basically, Divrei Shalom Ve'emet is the first vision that we see in writing, at least, for an enlightened Jewish educational structure, right? And, and because of that, it's quite significant. Now, in the pamphlet, Wesley introduces a language which is likely not his own, but becomes associated with him, between a distinction between what he calls Torah Ha'adam, human knowledge, and Torah Hashem, right? Divine knowledge. Human knowledge, he says, is based on education and subjects which are necessary to man's relationship to man, or today, people's relationship to people. Meaning, secular study of language, science, history. Today, we would probably add sociology, psychology, all the things that help you just relate to human beings as human beings. And then, Torah Hashem, the divine teachings, are based in Torah, and as such are the inheritance of the Jewish people alone. Right? He's not interested in universalizing the Torah. He's just interest, interested in reconciling the relationship between Torah Adam and Torah Hashem. And he says proper ed Jewish education must have both. Not only that, because that's not so new. I mean, it does put him a little bit on the edge, but there are many, even traditionalists, who would agree with him that proper education involves both Torah Hashem and Torah Adam. The revolution here is that he inverts the relationship between them. Because in Divrei Emet, Shalom Ve'emet, Wesley says that education in Torah Adam, in the universal human knowledge, must precede education in Torah Hashem. Because without a general education, it's impossible in his eyes to understand the Torah. Now that is a big, big assertion. Because he's claiming that divine knowledge that was gifted to Am Yisrael cannot be understood without a popular in, proper enlightened secular education. He says a Jew could be part of humanity if he lacks knowledge of the Torah but gets a general education, but he can't be a Jew if he doesn't have a secular education, no matter how much Torah he knows. That is a fighting stance. <laughs> you hear it? He's not just saying, we don't want to be Jews, we want to be secular. He's saying, all you people who think you're Jews and lack a secular, secular education, you don't even understand the Torah. You could be a human being with only a secular education, he says, but you can't be a Jew with only the Torah. It's a, it's a fantastic and, and challenging notion. And by basically proposing to place secular Western culture at the base of all Jewish education, what Wesley does is he supports the notion of tying emancipation to a complete break with traditional Judaism as we know it.
He may not have intended that. It's hard to know. And in his writings, it seems he, like Mendelssohn, maintained his sort of stance of allegiance to the binding nature of Torah. But practically speaking, when he literally appeals directly to the rabbis and community leaders to bring about freedom by voluntarily establishing a system of what will be known as reformed Jewish schools, that he's essentially saying that emancipation is contingent upon assimilation. Yeah, Avram. Yeah, Avram. You gotta unmute, you gotta unmute yourself. I can't hear you. So, well, by the way, in in, in his defense, we see from the Gemara onwards that the rabbis who who he worshipped or revered, careful, as real rabbis, generally actually did have a full grasp of the best knowledge of their time. A part of what he's asserting is that there's been this strange product of oppression which has caused the rabbinic class to retreat to this notion that only the Torah is true, and he was claiming that that itself was a corruption of true Torah knowledge. But yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a, a pretty chutzpah assertion. There's no question about that. Um, uh, the, um, the, uh, Sheila's saying, isn't he talking about ultimate truth? I, I don't even know if we have to go with truth, truth with the capital T. The whole point here is that the way in which we know the world, as far as Wesley is concerned, should be founded on the universal principles of enlightenment knowledge. Leaving aside the cultural relativism that he's blissfully unaware of because he's lived in the modern era. He believes, yes, he knows the world in that philosophical true sense. And that once you know the world in the philosophical true sense, then you can understand the Torah. Now, needless to say, the rabbis of Europe were universally opposed. <laughs> you know, and, and to say that they were opposed is actually a gross understatement. Led by the notable Yehuda who, and, and the Vilna Gaon, so the leader of Prague Jewry and, and, uh, and the Lithuanian Jewry, the traditionalists of the time unleashed an attack that was unprecedented and now controversy erupts. You have sermons being preached all over Europe against this upstart who dares to try to undermine rabbinic authority and whose educational ideas are threatening a mortal blow to Torah study. Now, Wesley responds with two more pamphlets, but it doesn't matter. He can't bridge the gap. Sides begin to form. Now, now, Divrei Shalom of Emet was published only a few weeks before Moses Mendelssohn wrote his preface to the Vindication of the Jews, meaning Mendelssohn is fighting this question of civil emancipation, and he doesn't want it to be contingent. Remember, he doesn't really take Wesley's side. But what happens? In that vindication, he'd expressed his, his hope that religious tolerance was what was going to lead Jewish leadership to voluntarily relinquish its authority in order to lead the way into enlightenment. Now what's happened? They're burning copies of Divrei Shalom Emet, and that, that pressure is being put on Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Levin of Berlin to actually excommunicate Wesley. It's, it's the nightmare scenario in Mendelssohn's mind because it's also, for the day, a very public struggle. This is the enlightenment test for Jewish society in, in Mendelssohn's mind. And governments and the press were watching it closely. Uh, Mendelssohn writes in a letter to a friend, what will the Christians have to say about this? What will they think when we exert force on this writer and seek to prevent him from expressing his thoughts? Basically, are we stuck in the Middle Ages? Now, Mendelssohn tried to use his influence in defense of Wesley, but in the end, he only managed to get tarred with the same brush. And in fact, many way, in many ways, very few people remember who Naftali Hertz Wesley was. I mean, I won't make you raise your hands, 
but I'm willing to bet that, say, 80% of you had never heard of him. But probably 80% of you have heard or more of Moses Mendelssohn. And in many ways, the labels put on Mendelssohn, right, the, uh, the uh, evil Moses of Dessau, the leader of the rebels, who has the cunning of the snake, or as the note of Yehuda says about Mendelssohn, now I see every offense we found him to be guilty of was all true. He's declared himself, he has no share in the God of Israel, nor in his Torah, and that says that every man may do as his heart desires, which is, you know, a, a willful reconstruction. A lot of it has to do with the fact that Mendelssohn tried to step into the breach to defend Wesley when Wesley took that very bold step. And so such a bitter criticism at a time when Mendelssohn felt that he was fighting the battle on behalf of the Jews to be allowed into Enlightenment society without having to abandon their traditional culture, you can imagine stung him very deeply. The result was a, his final book, which is seen to be his greatest work, and it's called Jerusalem. Well, it's a full title, or his full title is on religious power and Judaism. And he wrote it basically in a feverish eight-month period at the end of 1782, which was the height of the storm around Wesley's pamphlet, Vivre Shalom Ve'emet. Um, and it will become, in many ways, posthumously, the manifesto of the Berlin Enlightenment. Basically what happens is, is I, I got five minutes, I can do this. In the summer of 1782, Arthur Krantz, who was a satirist and a supporter of the Jews in Enlightenment circles and a friend of Mendelssohn, right? He was reporting on this whole controversy about Wesley, and he labeled it as an example of religious fanaticism, which was what was stopping the Jews from ever adopting the values of Enlightenment. And he then, in a second article, challenged Mendelssohn on the principles that he put forward in his whole preface to the Vindication of the Jews. Kranz basically said, listen, Judaism is based upon a system of prescriptions and punishments, and it was only political circumstances that prevented Jewish leadership from imposing the penalties of religious law as they were explained in the Bible. He said, quote, my dear Mr. Mendelssohn, you have in your remarkable preface wrenched the cornerstone under, uh, by stripping the synagogue of its original power. Basically, he threw down the gauntlet, and he wants Mendelssohn to prove that Judaism is not founded on the principle of coercion. And Jerusalem, or on Judaism and religious power, was Mendelssohn's response. It's an articulation of what he believed to be Jewish identity, which was simultaneously binding and nevertheless compatible with religious tolerance and therefore could actually be a model for Judaism in the modern era. Um, and he saw this, by the way, not just as a question for the Jews, but really as a um, uh, sort of a, almost a test case for, for modern society as a whole. Could you reconcile the conflicting demands of church and state, as we say in our language? Right? Because he sees two primary threats to society. One is the suffocation of natural rights by tyrannical government. The Jews are oppressed. On the other hand, he sees the threat as religious fanaticism, which itself breeds prejudice and hypocrisy, Right. Um, however, the oh, sorry, I'll say it better. There are two primary tensions. I, I, I didn't see properly in my notes. There's two primary tensions threatening society. One tension is between tyranny and anarchy. You have a society that tries to control and suffocate people, but then you have a society of absolute liberty, which is just anarchy. That's one tension. The other one is on a religious plane between religious fanaticism which is prejudice, hypocrisy, superstition, and the denial of God, which he says leads to the collapse of morality. And in Jerusalem, he tries to chart a course between them. 
Because Mendelssohn says, without belief in God, divine providence, reward and punishment, society in, it, based on morality and justice can't exist. At the same time, you know, and he wants the state to be able to give order and coerce, but religion should be able to teach and persuade. The state has physical power and uses it when necessary. Religion's power is a power of love and beneficence, right? And he really said that um, as an evolutionary thinker, there needed to be a long-term process until the state was going to be able to hold the boundaries of social discourse, keeping tyranny at bay in the civil state and atheism at bay in sort of the moral religious state. And meantime, that despite all the internal challenges that Judaism faced, Mendelssohn still insists in Jerusalem that emancipation is a right, not a privilege to be granted contingent upon our sacrifice of our culture. And that, like I said, society's attitude toward the Jews is a measure to the degree to which Enlightenment values are more than just empty words, but actual social principles. Now, you know, one might think that by placing personal autonomy at the center of Judaism, that Mendelssohn would have caused quite a ruckus in the rabbinic class himself. But the reality is that in his lifetime, and he dies in 1786, only a few years after it's published, Jerusalem makes no waves at all. It might be because that it had, was published in German and was not read by very many Jews in his day. Or it might be that the forces of traditionalism were focusing fire on Naftali Harris Wesley, who was, wasn't a philosopher, but rather, rather was an educator, and therefore cut much closer to the bone. But apparently it was a great disappointment to Mendelssohn that neither the rabbis nor even the maskilim paid much attention to Jerusalem in his lifetime. Like I said, it will go on and become the sort of manifesto of the Berlin Enlightenment when it truly gets off the ground as a movement, but that will happen after his death in 1786. And now I can say in the last minute, we've actually arrived to the proper stance of the Enlightenment within Berlin in 1786 and, you know, the deep encounter of European Judaism with modernity. And you guys have made it this far. I want to thank everybody for the level of commitment and participation and focus. I want to invite, once again, everybody to send me emails, comments, questions, thoughts that you have. I'm happy to hear them. And I want to encourage everybody to continue with the class. Right? We'll have a five-part um, a series on the foundational thinkers of Zionism during the Omer, and then we will pick up in the fall after whatever we decide to do with Elul, right, in, probably with the French uh, Revolution, and we'll launch off on our journey to modernity. So thank you, everybody. This was a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. To learn more about sponsoring a podcast, please contact jamie at pardes.org.